Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moonshoe. <laughs> Moonshoe? <laughs> <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moonshoe! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, the all-stop shop for moon-related content. Uh, we are recording this episode on the 24th of May at roughly half seven at night. This episode of the podcast, we'll be talking, as always, about moon news. Well, we'll be talking about the tragic death of Michael Collins and some kind of deja moon news as well, because we'll be following up with the SatNav system on the moon, a telescope on the far side of the moon and plenty of updates regarding lunar rovers. We'll also be talking about foreign moon news such as a proposed sample return mission to Titan, feedback and follow-ups on the Hiiaka occultation that we talked about last episode, and we'll be doing a new moon alert as well or a potential new moon alert. And as always ending the show on and the next moon is well we'll be talking about another moon of Jupiter. And as always I'm here with my good friend Rick. How are you doing Rick? I'm all right, Andy. How are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Even though it is entering summer, the weather is pretty grey outside, and a lot of people I know are feeling grey. Have you been feeling grey? Yeah, I have. However, I've unlike my wife, I don't have an outside job, so what's cheered me up is I don't have to work outside so I can just look at the rain <laughs> instead of experiencing it. Silver linings and all that. Well, yes, and the rain doesn't seem to bother us anymore because we're allowed indoors for pubs and social events now, which is quite pleasant. Indoors in groups rather than uh, with people outside your household, right? Because I've, <laughs> I've been staying indoors a lot over the last year, to be honest. You know what I mean. Have you been to the pub at all or met up with anyone? I've not been to the pub. I thought I'd just let everyone get their pub frenzy out of the way first before I venture in. But I have been round to a friend's for board games and it was a, uh, a six-hour War of the Ring Epic. Don't know if you're familiar with War of the Ring. It sounds a lot like Lord of the Rings. It is. It's the board game of Lord of the Rings. It's uh, in the top, I don't know, 30 games on Board Game Geek. Okay. Takes a few hours to play, and I lost. <laughs> so. Uh... <laughs> Who were you playing? Were you the ring? And you got tossed into Mordor. <laughs> no, I was Sauron in the in the second game. I can't remember what happened in the first game, but uh, this was a few weeks prior, but uh, and that was played outside because you're allowed to play outside. Uh, but the indoor game, I was Sauron, and uh, I managed to corrupt the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. There's this thing where you can sort of corrupt the Fellowship and. Either you take corruption points or someone has to leave the group and head off into Middle-earth. So I was very proud that, you know, all these Gandalf and Strider and everyone had to disappear off because uh, they got very corrupted. Uh, yeah, and it, it was just, was it Frodo Baggins and Sam and Gollum at the edge of Mount Doom? And thankfully, to a lucky roll, uh, I sort of got them very, very corrupted, which, <laughs> which didn't win the game. But it, uh, when you go to the last step, you have to roll some dice or, or pick a tile out of a pot. And my opponent didn't really want to do that because that was uh, the tiles in the pot were like, you die. Or, uh, unlucky, unlucky Frodo, death. So, uh, yeah, he he, uh, he then went for a military victory or something. But it, it just meant that uh, Frodo had run all the way <laughs> with the Fellowship to the to Mount Doom and then just stood at the top at the precipice, um, <laughs> not throwing the ring in. <laughs> so, very thematic. 
the board game uh, on the side of the box, does it say like playtime three to six hours or something like that? Uh, I think it's officially like three hours, but we play tactically. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I looked at an online version of some people playing it and they were just like, oh, I'll do this, dink, dink, dink. And they were very quick at playing it, whereas we sort of play it once every year. We usually sort of meet up at Christmas or something to play it Yeah. Um, for our annual game of uh, War of the Ring because it takes like 45 minutes to set up or something stupid. It's an event uh, and, and we keep having to reminding ourselves of what the rules are. Can the ring wraiths uh, fly in this direction? Uh, no. Yeah, I know what you mean about it being an event, because it's been like that with um, Dead of Winter with my friends, and it says on the side of the box, 45-minute playtime, it's like, I'm lucky if I get one round of it in 45 minutes, because we're all messing about and chatting and (laughs) making stupid jokes, when it should be, right? I move this here, I do this, I do this search, I attack that zombie, boom, 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 right, your go. But no, we're just like mocking about, and it's all like, oh for almost every <laughs> dice roll. Uh, so I do know what you mean about it taking ages. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine Undead of Winter is a pretty utilitarian game where actually just, I'm going there, I'm going to search, roll the dice, that's your turn. So you could probably <laughs> probably have a game in 10 minutes or something. You could, uh, but <laughs> we choose it not It wouldn't to. be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've yet to play it. And hopefully now that we're yeah. allowed indoors, we shall, we shall try to do that, whilst also potentially planning some live moon shows or some moon lectures that'll be slightly not comedy lectures but we'll try to make them a bit engaging and entertaining and not just a dry well the moon is clearly worth (laughs) this much because it has this much plutonium on it and blah 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 blah. we'll try and make it as entertaining as possible but that's a big shooting for the moon future plans but right now we have a, a show to get on with so without further ado let's crack on with the show So we start the show as always with moon news and sadly we have to talk about a tragic bit of moon news and that is the death of Michael Collins who was one of the three crew members on the first mission to the moon. He was the guy who stayed in the lunar orbiter whilst Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down in the lunar lander to the moon's surface and he died on the 28th of April at age 90 and he'd lived a long and fruitful life and achieved some incredible, incredible things. And when you see, like, oh, this famous celebrity died at around the 85, 90 mark, I always think they had a good innings. One of the things that I did want to point out about this, though, is that a lot of articles, they either called him the unsung hero of the first moon landing or the loneliest human. And that that's quoting the fact that he was, like, the furthest human to have travelled the furthest point away from the earth but that didn't necessarily make him the loneliest person and when you just see these headlines of michael collins the loneliest human dies at 90 you think oh god what what kind of life did he leave then (laughs) yeah uh, i don't think they're perhaps looking for the term remote or something because yeah if, if you've got nasa waiting on your bated breath and everyone in the world tuning in to your moon landing i don't know if you can consider yourself lonely well i think they're talking about a quote from his book called Carrying the Fire, which, by the way, is a brilliant book. And even if you're not necessarily into space and, like, the moon landings and kind of thing, it's just a very engaging, well-written book. And 
very worth listening to, especially on like audiobook. I'd strongly recommend that. As opposed to Buzz Aldrin's book, which is called Magnificent Desolation, which is self-indulgent pap. The first two chapters is about going to the moon, and the ten chapters after that are all about him coming back, struggling with alcoholism, having a divorce, getting remarried again, falling in love again. It's like, shut up, Buzz. We're not here for that. We're here for the moon. <laughs> Andy does like his moons. <laughs> Well, it, it's also the ego that comes with Buzz Aldrin, because he is quite a bit of an egomaniac now and a bit eccentric. Uh, I do like the fact that he punched a moon landing denier in the face. That does always make me smile. But if you want a good book about the moon landings, read Carrying the Fire by uh, Michael Collins, which is a fantastic book. I want to read a passage of that in a minute, but one of the things that I do want to also talk about is Michael Collins took one of the most famous photos of the eagle as it was descending down onto the moon. And this photo is quite unique because it has the earth in the background, the moon, and the lander with Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong on board. And if you think about it, every single person in the world, every single human in our solar system is in that one photograph. Every person who is living, every person who has died and buried, and every person who is yet to be is on the Earth. Two humans on the lander and just Michael Collins on the other side of the camera. So every single human in the solar system in that one photo. It's quite incredible when, when you look at it. Everyone apart from Michael Collins yes. is on the wrong side of the camera. Yes. So should have just leant round and did a selfie or something. <laughs> Doing duck lips and put on like one of those like nice filters. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that that is quite impressive. Yes, he's taken a photo of everyone. He's like a wedding photographer, but like a humanity photographer. <laughs> Thankfully, he didn't do some sort of subsets of yeah. Can we have the bride and groom and East Elbonia? Uh, <laughs> The Northern, Northern Liberation Alliance of the Ruritanian Army and uh, also Fred. And where's the Sisters of the Bride? We need the Sisters of the Bride. Have they wandered off again? Oh, God, they've wandered off again. If they're, go if they're going for a cigarette, tell them to just wait. We need them now. In fact, it is the omni-wedding photo. It's just <laughs> like, well, everyone in your wedding was on that photo, technically. So sort it out. Can you take it again? My eyes were closed. <laughs> yeah. The reputation of Michael Collins being the loneliest human, uh, I think, harks back to this passage from his book called Carrying the Fire. So I'm just going to read this because it's actually quite poignant and it kind of shows how much of a good writer he is. Far from feeling lonely or abandoned, I feel very much a part of what is taking place on the lunar surface. I don't mean to deny a feeling of solitude. It is there, reinforced by the fact that radio contact with the Earth abruptly cuts off at the instant I disappear behind the moon. I am now alone truly alone and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two on the other side of the moon and one plus God only knows what on this side. I feel this powerfully, not as fear or loneliness, but as awareness, anticipation, satisfaction, confidence, almost exultation. And I like this feeling. Outside my window, I can see stars and that is all. Where I know the moon to be, there is simply a black void. The moon's presence is defined solely by the absence of stars. To compare the sensation with something more terrestrial, perhaps being alone on a skiff in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a pitch black night would be the most nearly approximate to my situation. And that's just like a taste of what carrying the fire is like. That 
yeah, that sounds great. Very good writing. Uh, I do like the fact he, he specifically says, I do not feel alone <laughs> <laughs> multiple times. Now, the, you know, let me confirm, it is not loneliness I feel, but these other things. And so, yeah, some journalistic hacks are going, you said lonely, that'll do. <laughs> Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. But uh, rest in peace, Michael Collins. You were a fantastic explorer. Carrying on with some moon news and a bit of uh, feedback or calling back to earlier episodes. Do you remember us talking about them setting up sat-nav systems on the moon? Uh, Yes. Yeah, GPS. Lunar positioning. It's an SSTL assembly on navigation payloads on the European Union's Galileo sat-nav system. And you were involved with Galileo sat-nav systems, weren't you? I was. I was on the security segment of the ground control system. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, what did I do? <laughs> uh, uh, I remember it involved going to the Netherlands, uh, to Eztec, ESA's technology centre. Yeah. And in the evening, we went into a bar, who, which presumably wasn't being run by the owner, but some students who... Someone on our group expressed an interest in having a local tipple or local uh, liqueur. And so they said, oh, I'll try this one. And they go, oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, try this one. No, try that one. You know, <laughs> it was like, okay, yeah. Uh, we, we can't afford to pay for this. Ah, oh, don't worry, the manager's away. And, and so, yeah, we just had ended up having loads of um, liqueurs, courtesy of these students who probably shouldn't, shouldn't have just been giving away free drink. But uh, they were happy to uh, practice their English with English people, and we were happy to try various liqueurs. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> That sounds like good hospitality. <laughs> I have no idea what happened the next day. Uh, in... <laughs> Hopefully, I think we designed a satellite system. <laughs> Hopefully, if the satellites haven't been compromised since. Well, since you since you have some inside knowledge of that particular branch of ESA, does the name David Parker ring a bell? Uh, no. Okay. Just in case okay. you happen to be working with Davy the Copy Boy, and now he's suddenly the director <laughs> of human said. and robotic exploration at ESA. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean. We were a supplier to ESA, so we uh, we just met the people that we needed to speak to, but we we didn't really um, fraternise the word. We didn't wander around ESA just chatting <laughs> to random people. We weren't there full time. We just went over for visits to say, this is what we've done this month. Can you sign it off, please? So, yeah, we, we may have bumped into David Parker in the canteen, but we have no idea. Also, the lunches, just a random fact, took about two hours because all the Brits wanted for lunch, they just wanted to go and get a sandwich, 15 minutes back and get on working and then, you know, finish the day early. Whereas the European mentality was, no, no, we're going to sort of eat from one till three and then work till seven. Instead of of doing a nine till five. (laughs) Oh, God, no. (laughs) We we don't want to do But Anyway, we're kind of outvoted. Oh, God, that is my nightmare because I'd just be like, we could have the big meal in our free time yeah well this is it this two hour lunch break is my free time and i choose what i do in my free time and i don't want to spend it with you lot Um, (laughs) (laughs) i'm laughing because i felt that exact same thing (laughs) and and this was a british-wide sentiment i think oh absolutely Uh, uh, yeah we were Obviously outvoted many a time. Could have just gone to lunch, got a sandwich and gone back, but there would be no one in the office for like one hour, 45 minutes. So we couldn't do anything. (sighs) So yeah, we sort of had to sit through. I don't know what the conversations were. Something about some football league we'd never heard of. Oh, joy. (laughs) Two hours of small talk centred around football. Kill me now. Yeah. Oh, 
Um, okay, while we were at ESA or working there, did you come across something called Moonlight? Literally the light off the moon? No, the, the, the code name for this project. No. They, yeah, they didn't invent Moonlight, I don't think. No, I didn't come across anything called Moonlight, but also I'd like to stress that we only turned up, did our thing on our project and then went home. We occasionally sort of had people come and go, oh, we've done this and did this, and, and once again we're like, oh, that, that's great, can we go home now? Because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> We've got a plane to catch. Uh, so, yeah, someone may have mentioned Moonlight. It may have, in fact, been David Parker coming up to us talking about Moonlight. And we said, is this anything to do with our project? No? Right, thanks, we're off. Young David Parker with a glint in his eye. Yeah. Like, but, 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 Mr Rick, <laughs> I've been working on this all day. And he's just got, like, a nice little napkin with lots of crayon drawings of these gorgeous little satellites around the moon. It's like, that's nice. I've got to go now. Bye. Yeah. We're a commercial contractor. We're paid by the hour. Are we being paid for this hour to listen to you? Because we weren't, <laughs> we weren't paid for that two hours lunch break, I tell you that. And we had to listen to you there. Thankfully, Davy Parker stuck with it <laughs> and uh, has come up with Moonlight, which is a sat-nav system around the moon. And it's a proposed mission. So this hasn't come to fruition yet, but it's got the next into the next stage. So it's getting... They're really fleshing out the details before they start actually building things. They're seeking out, like, two... They're called consortia. Uh, to define what integrated satnav and telecom systems at the moon would look like. And they've gone for one UK small satellite manufacturer, which is Surrey Satellite, which just hey. which just sounds like <laughs> a, a knockoff satellite shop where you just go to get your dishes for football streaming to get Sky Sports. And it's run by someone called Bill or Steve. Uh, it does sound like that. Legally, we say it, they're not. They're very, I'm sure, professional. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think I said this before early on the uh, the Moon podcast, but they were like the rival satellite company to Kinetic, which is where I used to work. Oh, okay. Um, people left Kinetic's space department to go and work for Surrey Satellites. That was back when they were a startup, and it, they were kind of the Ryanair of satellite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> satellite technology. Uh, someone once explained it. This is may or may not be true, so I'll not take any liability. That Kinetic were asked to launch a satellite, it would cost ten million pounds. Whereas if Surrey satellites would just build it cheap, like a one million, launch it, and it might have a let's say a thirty percent chance of blowing up. Uh, and if it did. They'd just build another one for a million and then send it up again. Or not even blowing up, just not working. But it was ultimately cheaper to keep retrying on cheap satellites than to do a £10 million one. And uh, it seems to have worked. I don't know if that's true, but uh, that's how it was explained. Well done, Surrey Satellites, for staying in business. Normally, I'm fine with this blasé attitude, but considering this is spaceflight and the next step up from satellites is, like, live cargo of humans or animals. I don't like this approach as much anymore. Yeah, I will stress they didn't send any animals or uh, humans. But yeah, I mean, it's a fair approach, really, to say, actually, if we just knock together a satellite with three coat hangers and a bit of chewing gum, instead of building it through all the rigorous testing and so on, we just get multiple bites at the cherry, and it might end up being cheaper that way. And it... Well, can't argue with that approach. Hopefully they have matured when they're given <laughs> some payloads, as opposed to just making their own payloads and taping them to the rocket. But I think uh, ESA are hedging their bets because they've got the other consortium that they've gone with <laughs> is an Italian space company which has the most Italian-sounding name, which is Telespazio. Uh, yeah, I think they ran the uh, the ground station at, for Galileo. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, they did. I thought I'd heard of them. And it wasn't just a news story that Telespazio ground security system hacked due to hangover-induced negligence on this specific day. Room smelt of liqueur. <laughs> well, I think I've explained this before, but I'll explain it again. The Galileo system was split into ground control segment, ground mission segment, and space segment. The space segment were the satellites, so if you were... Andy, you were charged to deliver the space segment. It's like, you'll deliver the satellites. And if something goes wrong with the satellites in space, it's your fault. The ground control segment are the people that keep the satellites in the right position. So we were there developing the systems to make sure they're in the right position, but we don't really care what they broadcast. They could just be broadcasting episodes of the Teletubbies or something, for all we cared. And the ground mission segment, they were controlling what the satellites were broadcasting. So they were taking in all the feeds of all the inputs from around the world of where the satellites were because it's a global positioning system as the satellites went around the world they went slightly out of you know that you had to know where they are because they weren't perfectly sort of aligned because things in space slightly drift because of solar winds and what have you so there were down links sort of in New Zealand and China and what have you that would take very accurate measurements of while the satellite went past us at this time then all that maths went back into the ground mission segment who then said right next time the satellite comes past we'll give it its exact position and therefore it should the satellite knows its position correctly so it will be passing that on and so on so yeah if the ground mission segment which i think the italians was it so if they get hacked into i'm not too fussed because that's <laughs> nothing to do with us <laughs> if, you, if you ever find that a satellite went out of orbit then it's like oh hang on yeah that's us but if satellites start just broadcasting the russian national anthem on loop <laughs> like, well that's not us ground segment <laughs> did its job <laughs> or ground control segment is fine hopefully they'll both be secure because this sat-nav system around the moon will be used to help rovers find their way around. Very much just like how you're driving from A to B and you use a sat-nav to figure out where you're going. The sat-nav system around the moon can be tapped into by these little rovers to help find out where they're going. And it could also be used for relaying data back. So it's just going to be a huge asset if it gets up and running, which considering how the commercial space race is ramping up again and has the moon in sight, I reckon this is going to be um, up and running pretty soon. Yeah, that'd be good. I mean, hopefully it's not completely brand new technology because it's just, oh yeah, we've done GPS before, just change the variable Earth to Moon. It's that simple. You just go into the it code. <laughs> Earth, delete, delete, delete. Moon. Yeah, you can tell I wasn't actually part of the space segment. <laughs> so another bit of Deja Moon. Do you remember I was talking about a huge lunar crater radio telescope? A huge dish that will go into a crater on the far side of the moon. Uh, yes. It was like the GoldenEye lunar Earth crater thing. I know exactly what, what you mean, which is based on a real observatory, the Arashibo. Arakibo Observatory, which was sadly destroyed, not by Alec Trebek or Sean Bean in GoldenEye, but it actually fell apart. I think there was a um, an earthquake that caused the uh, structure to... Well, it just damaged the structure and then it just collapsed in on itself. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be repaired, sadly. Oh dear, but the principle's the same though. Going to find a big lunar crater. Uh, well, yeah, pr pretty much. The principle is the same of use the crater as a dish and then you get wires 
having the receiver of the dish suspended above it. So you have this colossal crater which will reflect waves back up towards the receiver. And this is the plan. So we already talked about this plan in a previous episode, which I will link here. But because now it has got the next stage of planning, it's been given $500,000 to enter the second fave, so fleshing out the details, you know, putting pen to paper, doing all the maths. This is, like, more than proof of concept. This is actually, all right, you've got all the plans to hand. Go and build it. So it's kind of like that stage of it. And because it's in that stage, it means new graphics. So as opposed to just the little robots drawn on napkins, we actually have some pretty cool little graphics, which is useless for a podcast, but pretty good for the YouTube video, which I'll put up on screen now. But yeah, you're going to have these little robots that land onto the far side of the moon, deploy these wires that go into the crater, and then kind of like string it up like a washing line with the receiver in the middle. And there you have it, the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope, which is still pretty cool. Do you know what it would be looking for? Um, signals from stars. Uh, I'm going to give you half a point for that. <laughs> yes, it is. It's going to be looking for radio waves from a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So the early stages of the universe's formation. Big Bang happened 14.5 billion years ago. So it's trying to get radio waves from that 0.5 billion years ago era. And that'll help cosmologists figure out a lot of the universe's dark age and dark age secrets and cosmology was my weakest subject in, <laughs> in physics. So I don't really know what specifically they're looking for, but it'll be to do with hydrogen and particular radio waves to do with hydrogen. And it's all up there and like the background radiation of the cosmos and the universe. But the problem is here on Earth, we've got so many other signals that just kind of mask it completely. So that's why we need this telescope on the far side of the moon, very much like the Hubble telescope being above the Earth's atmosphere gets a clearer view of the stars. A radio telescope on the far side of the moon will get a clearer view of the cosmos. So you may or may not be able to answer this. So if I'm trying to listen to signals from just after the Big Bang, and I say just, meaning a few million years, um, if I've got a sound and the energy and waves propagate outwards, and Earth is within the, uh, basically, the, I'm guessing the Earth, the sound or the, the waves, or the light waves have gone past Earth, what are they reflecting off to come back, if you see what I mean? Oh, God, okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. I might not be able to answer this one. <sighs> I don't think it's reflecting off anything. I think it's the fact that the universe is expanding. You know, you have like the observable universe. I think it's yeah. the universe beyond the observable universe that's kind of like catching up with us and we're getting those radio waves from far enough away. So the observable universe, you're looking back through history and the furthest point in time is how far light has traveled. So I think it's those waves that they're trying to detect. Oh, okay. I still couldn't quite work it out, but that's probably my fault. I'm, I'm probably doing a bad explanation of it because the cosmos is bigger than the moon and moons in general. <laughs> Those are my remit. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'll write that down. The cosmos is bigger than the moon. Yeah, if you're doing the symbol of more than, put two or three. <laughs> okay. Um... So yeah, uh, in case you were wondering, the big golden eye telescope that might be put on the far side of the moon is getting another green light. It might get scrapped, hopefully not, but there's some new graphics. Woo! So, 
Moon news and moon rover news. There's going to be another moon rover. There's only one operational moon rover on the moon, and that is... Is that U-22? It is U-22. I'm going to do a quick update on that because it's still going. Hey. It's been going for 871 days and covered a whopping 710 metres. <laughs> it's not to be sniffed at, but I reckon this little thing is going to get to a thousand days. It was only planned for three months, for three lunar days, and it's just absolutely smashed it. So it's going to be going back into its dormant state soon, which means it'll be going into shadow because it's entering lunar night, and when it's there's no light, its batteries can't recharge, so it just goes into a hibernation, and then 14 days later, when there is light on the moon, it wakes up and the batteries recharge, and then it trundles off again to do another whopping 10 meters or something like that. But it's still returning data, it's still taking photos, so good on you, you two two. And you never know, it might still be going when this next moon rover hops up, and that is the Viper robot. And this is the Volatiles Investigating Polar exploration rover viper it's made by nasa and you'll never guess where it's going one of the poles presumably if it's looking for volatiles take a stab between north and south um north oh god rick where do they think there is ice on the moon uh i remember this it's in craters so yes it's either on the north and or south <laughs> Yes. Which one has the most? Oh, I don't know. I, I, my job is to forget everything I know about moons between episodes. Okay. I'm, I think I'm guessing the south. It is by, the south. By your uh, disappointment. <laughs> the the setting up Viper in 2023, and it's going to search ice and other resources on or below the lunar surface, and they're going to send it to the South Pole, where it's going to be permanently in shadow. So it's going to actually have some. I think it's going to have like headlights on it which is pretty cool which I think is like the first time this has happened because it's going to be in permanently shadowed regions so it's going to be the first rover with headlights on it to drive around which I think is quite cool it's going to be running on apparently solar power but if it's in permanent shadows I don't know how it's going to do that seems a bit of a stupid oversight Actually, no, the, the, the rationale here is running on solar power, Viper will need to quickly manoeuvre around extreme swings in light and dark at the lunar south pole. So I think it'll be like parts of the rims of a crater will be in permanent light. And on the other side of the rim, in the basin of the crater, it'll be in permanent shadow. So it might have to just quickly hop up and down that. This is part of NASA's branching out into the commercial space environment or whatever you want to call it. And they've uh, given the contract to Astrobotic to get Viper from Earth to the moon. And I read this and thought, Astrobotic? Why do I know that name? And then I remember that Spacebit are using Astrobotic to get their walking rover up to the moon, the, the little spider thing that's going to go in the lava tubes. And then I was like, oh, I wonder if they've actually listened to us and they've, you know, given it a proper name. And they have. Walking Rover has a proper name now, hey. which is Asagumo. And it's named after a Japanese proverb saying, morning spider brings fortune, night spider comes as a thief. That must be part of like a haiku or something like that. But Asagumo, that's a good name for a walking rover. Marvellous. You've changed society with your campaign to get the name changed. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I could take sole credit for this. I thought you were going to say they changed the name from walking rover to machine that walks <laughs> on the lunar surface. <laughs> Yeah, something uh, nice that rolls off the tongue like that. But the um, vessel or the lander that this rover is going to be put on is called a peregrine. Again, like I know this. I know this name. Why do I know this? So Astrobotics 
Peregrine, Luna Lander, is going to take Asagumo, the walking rover, to the moon, but it's going to have on it five more rovers. One of which was apparently called Andy, <laughs> but they changed the name, which is really annoying. Um, it's called Iris now, but it was called Andy. And at one point it was the Carnegie Mellon Rover. Mellon spelled M-E-L-L-O-N. But it's made by the Carnegie Science Institute in um, Washington, D.C. I think it's Washington, D.C. They have designed Iris, which is a walking rover. And there's four other rovers that are going to be put on the Peregrine Lunar Lander. And you've got one from Chile, Japan, Mexico and Hungary. And they'll all do their various things of like, oh, we'll drill on the surface. We'll see what we can find. This is mostly a test for private enterprise and, and like universities and students banding together to build a robot, see if it can do its task remotely, return some data, and it's going to be a huge scientific achievement, especially if it's in like private industry and it, like a uni level. What we might end up with if you have a lander taking six robots to the moon and releasing them all at once, you could have robot wars on the moon. You could, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because also, if one of them's called Walking Rover, is another one called Tripping Up? <laughs> <laughs> and all all its mission is just to go and clip the back of walking rogers' ankles. Oh, hang on a minute. Let's, yeah, Mexico is sending up Sir Killalot with an enforced yeah. pincer. <laughs> so I think the first thing he's going to do is just snip the legs off Asagumo. Oh, hang on. On the Peregrine as well, they're sending up the first human, and it's Jonathan Pierce to commentate <laughs> on this first lunar battle. Yeah, it's the ref bot going up as well. Yeah, and it just immediately fall in a crater like it usually does. <laughs> yeah, I'd be tempted if I had a slot on the Peregrine. Which robot are you sending up? It's like, oh, yeah, Sir Killalot. <laughs> just, just scare the others. What, which one are you sending up? Chaos 2? It'll flip it into orbit. <laughs> That's a point. This has separate video written all over it. I'll do some maths and see if Chaos 2 could flip another robot into orbit. That sounds good. There's other robots that are like better than Chaos 2. Uh, like, do you remember Wheelie Big Cheese? Uh, yeah. Which is just a huge wedge with wheels and it had the potential to be an incredible flipper but the problem is you it needed to be like that sweet spot where you lined up the robot at the perfect bit of the wedge and you flipped it at full power but it had like a two second delay so they had to time it perfectly and they only right. managed it once but they flipped something a good 20 feet up into the air <laughs> like it and it went from one side of the arena out to the other and smacked into the glass. It was absolutely spectacular. So I reckon that could launch something into orbit. I'll just quickly YouTube that. So yeah, now that you've uh, seen that flip, by the way, in case there's an awkward edit here, we stopped to go watch Robot Wars clips. Uh, do you think that Wheelie Big Cheese could flip something into orbit? Um, how much is gravity on the moon? Uh, well, gravity is 1.62, so it's about a sixth to a seventh of what it is on here. I can't do the formula for escape velocity in the head, so I'm just going to Google it. 2.38 kilometres a second might be a bit much of an ask. That's quite a bit. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think... Yeah, it wasn't going 2.38 kilometres a second on that clip. Well, I wonder how far it would go, though. Because it would go like 10 times as much, so you flip it outside the Robot Wars arena and it will land in, like, the car park. Oh, yeah, I could figure out how far it would go. Could it clear a basin... I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out. Oh, uh, do you know what also is on board this Peregrine? There's two more things on here that I want to mention. It has a state-of-the-art relay service provided by 
Sorry, satellite technology. <laughs> that that was just to get away out of you. <laughs> state of the art, I bet it is. <laughs> state of the art duct tape. Gone down to Maplins. What's the cheapest? <laughs> no, nothing's cheap in Maplins. Everyone knows oh, yeah. <laughs> nothing is cheap there. Also on the Astrobotics Peregrine is a DHL moon box. And it's like a time capsule and it's going to be taken to the moon in 2021. So later on this year. So walking rovers getting launched hopefully later on this year if COVID doesn't screw things up even more. And on the Peregrine Lander is the moon box, which is a time capsule. And it contains 28 capsules, all of which have been filled and contain things from all around the world, include USA, UK, Canada. Not a good start, guys. Germany and Belgium, okay, and Nepal, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, there are 28 capsules. Sorry, I'm looking at the, the table. So out of the 28, uh, yeah, a good two-thirds are the USA. Oh, I'd probably say 75%. Not all of them have provided a name, but it's usually the name of what is in there and the agency or company or person. And I think a lot of people have got confused while filling in the form because one of these is called... <laughs> I need more moon. <laughs> moon my name. Digital files. <laughs> it's like you kind of look like a, an old person who's not computer literate has sort of filled out this form. Yeah. I'm none the wiser as to what anyone is putting in their payloads or why. Or The only one who's done it probably is Dogecoin to the moon by Dogecoin. I know what that is. That one's obvious. How big are the payloads? Are they like matchbox size or? That's a good point. I actually don't know how big they are, but I think a lot of these are like digital things. It's probably the size of a USB stick. I'll find out how big the capsules are. And how much did they pay to put something on the moon? Well, the website is here and the demo items they have are like a family photo, a cufflink or a pin, a wedding ring. So I think they're tiny. It doesn't give me the specifications. I can... Oh, bloody hell, there you go. $1,660 for an inch wide capsule with an adjustable height of two... Oh, that's the baseline. If I want it even bigger. Oh my goodness. If I want it one inch by two inch, it's $25,000. Wow. <laughs> People must really want to put USB sticks on the moon or family, family photo on the moon. That's All right, I've got a USB stick in front of me. Where's my ruler? Right, so this USB stick, it's two inches long, about two thirds of an inch wide. So if I wanted to send that to the moon, that would cost me, oh my goodness, that would cost me $25,000 to send this USB stick, which has pirated copies of the Mandalorian on it. <laughs> okay, cool. I'd just pay off your mortgage if you got that. <laughs> Go on holiday. Order that pizza you wanted. <laughs> now looks good value. Oh, God. It has suggested items to put in there. <laughs> People who put a USB stick also put. <laughs> so, suggested items. Wedding flower petal, scout badge, baby's fingerprint, signature, company logo, family photo, piece of graduation tassel. But the thing is, I left my glasses in the other room. So when I first glanced at this, I just saw suggested items. Baby! Pet! <laughs> Baby's fingers. What? <laughs> um, you spent nearly $26,000 on getting something to the moon and you couldn't fill out the form right. So it's just called Moon My Name. <laughs> Bizarre. So say like you have unlimited money and you want to put a moon box on the Peregrine. 
What one inch by two inch item are you putting on there? Um, to prove I've listened to the show, I'm going to put one by two inches worth of tardigrades. <laughs> just to annoy you. <laughs> that is a lot of money to spend on spiting me. <laughs> For those of you who uh, haven't heard, oh, no, I don't know, this was one of the first episodes. It was. Someone snuck some tardigrades onto a moon lander and they're li- very little creatures that are very difficult to destroy and can sort of go into hibernation. So there is life on the moon and it's a very bad idea to um, be polluting other planets with our uh, ecosystem. And Andy got very angry at them, quite rightly. So Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, that's what I do. Just fill the whole thing with tardigrades. Uh, I would put on a mini uh, robot from Robot Wars because when they, when they sold the toys, you could get the little pullback versions of some of the more famous ones like Chaos 2 or Panic Attack. But you could also get these die-cast mini ones that were that were tiny. And I reckon, yeah, looking at the ruler, they are at least one inch wide, two inches tall. So I reckon I could get in a small Panic Attack or Chaos 2 onto the moon. And they also did the house robots as well, which is pretty cool. So if I could find one that meets the criteria, maybe a tiny little shunt could go onto the moon. <laughs> I've just Googled them. Yeah, oh, they're all very did it a little hypno-disc. Yeah, they're so tiny, oh, aren't they? That's very cute. Did you get them? <laughs> yeah, I've got all of them. They're back at home. Oh, cool. Uh, are they out of the box? Yes, absolutely. I played with them. Played with them a lot. Cool. Who was your favourite robot? The one that I like to play with the most out of those was Firestorm because the way that it was cast, uh, it was really low, so it would always go underneath the other robots and immediately flip them out of the uh, arena. Uh, that was always quite fun to do. Yeah, this is. I'm going through them with like Razor and Panic Attack, and I'm like, I remember these. <laughs> it's just like some flashback to a past life or something. It's like, I remember in mid 90s when I was young. Uh, well, if you want to immortalize this trip down memory lane, cough up twenty six thousand dollars, and I'll go home and get one of these mini robots out of the out the loft. <laughs> And now it's time for Foreign Moon News, the time where we talk about moons that don't belong to the planet Earth and other and moons of other planets. And this time, we're going to start with moons in a foreign country, because this week was Eurovision. (laughs) (laughs) And this actually ties into what I'm drinking right now, which is... Vienna Lager, brewed by a Danish brewery called McKellar, because for Eurovision, uh, I had a legally allowed party, because there were only a few of us, and what I tried to do was get as many beers from the competing countries as I could. So I'd have, like, Stella for Belgium. Uh, Before you say anything, yes, I know Belgian beers are, like, really rich and you have some fantastic ones. Why the hell did I waste it on (laughs) Stella? If I'd have mixed in Belgian beers with the other lighter beers, it would have destroyed us all. So we just tried to keep it simple with light beers. So I had like Superbock for Portugal, Estrella for Spain, Heineken for the Netherlands, loads and loads and loads of different beers. Quick one, my Belgian beer anecdote. A friend of mine who's into beers went over to Belgium to this monastery that makes prestigious beer. And in order to get your hands on it, you have to basically phone up the monks and they have no answer phone. They just have a phone that you just have to keep ringing and it's always engaged because everyone else just keeps ringing it. 
it. And <laughs> you basically book a time slot, you turn up exactly that time slot, you show ID, and they, a monk just puts a crate of this very rare to obtain beer in, in the back of your car, and you then drive off. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Belgian beers are so good, even the monks make them, and they are very rare, whatever this beer was called. Uh, well, I can name some, but they're probably one of those like really niche ones that uh, I'm too plebby to know about. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's often the monks that uh, do the Belgian beers. But yes, I didn't want to get destroyed, so we just stuck to the light beers. But I started collecting these beers at the start of the week before the semi-finals and that was a stupid idea because I got Czech beer, Polish beer, they got knocked out and then this beer which I thought I was being really smart about, a Vienna style lager, Austria, by a Danish brewery, Denmark, both of them got knocked out which is really frustrating but it just means that I can have this nice beer now. But the reason we're talking about Eurovision and foreign moons is because Spain had a big moon floating above them. And that was the only memorable thing of their act, because the song was very, very bland. I'm sure it was very pretty and stoic and it meant a lot to the guy performing it, but it was ultimately forgettable. Yeah, I, I only saw the last few acts, but when they were doing the recap, it was just like, oh, there's a moon. I bet Andy likes that. Did everyone shout, Andy, there's a moon? Yes, I got several yeah. texts being like, oh, did you like Spain? <laughs> It's got a moon on yeah. it, you should vote for it. Yes, they did have a, have a moon. What I was interested in though is how the hell they got it down. And it turns out it was inflated. Because you only have 40 seconds to um, turn around the stage or some ridiculously short amount of time. So there's behind the scenes footage of these 10 guys all stomping on the moon trying to deflate it and like put it in a, a big bag <laughs> and rush it off stage. Do, do you have a favourite from Eurovision? Which ones did I see? only saw the last sort of eight and they weren't hilariously comic but I, I think was it Switzerland that was don't let them break you or don't let them get you down or something Switzerland was just a boy with feelings singing about his feelings oh it wasn't that one then whichever the song was don't let them break you I don't feel hate Germany the one with the ukulele no it wasn't because that <laughs> that was one with the, someone dressed up as a hand yeah originally it was meant to be giving you the middle finger but they said you can't do that so she had to hold her arm down no hold her arm up for most of the performance so it was two fingers but she kept forgetting so it was mostly just a middle finger most of the time <laughs> right are you thinking of fallen angel by ticks no that... or voila by barbara because that was better than switzerland's yeah that was a real stoic power ballad and i felt that whereas with switzerland it was just like oh it's it's a boy who can sing well having feelings uh but anyway this is this isn't a eurovision podcast <laughs> yes uh, so yes, after much searching <laughs> online, uh, it was Tussie by Sweden who was my uh, favourite. They were good. I liked Lithuania. I thought they were like, Lithuania and Iceland were what modern Eurovision should be, which is musically talented, quirky, weird, but fun. Oh yeah, yeah. I liked uh, Lithuania as well. Ukraine, that was like getting told off by a headmistress. It was, that that was an intense song, but it's the one that's actually <laughs> like stuck in my head. It was never going to win, but I was like, that's what I'm here for, for Eurovision. This weird folk dance remix. And this year, Eurovision was what Eurovision should be, which is just traditional, like, as in, like, it has its stupid traditions, like the UK getting zero. And they didn't deserve zero. It's just 
purely down to Brexit, and I completely understand why Europe hates us and they don't want to give us any points because we haven't been the nicest people to them. We sent Anne Whittacombe to their parliament so she could sing Land of Hope and Glory and not take part. <laughs> I could completely understand. She also got null par, yeah. Yeah, I could completely understand why Europe doesn't like us at the moment. Anyway, to wrap this up, Eurovision was good, Spain had a moon, their song was crap. Bye. Now time for some proper foreign moon news. And continuing with the rover theme, a sample return mission has been proposed to Saturn's moon of Titan. Now, there's always these missions planned where, oh, they're going to go to Europa, they're going to go to Miranda, they're going to go to Pluto's moon of Charon again, and they're all proposed missions, and usually they don't really pan out or they're, like, moulded into other ones. The, the reason I want to talk about this one is because it's the sample return aspect from Titan. It's so far away. Saturn takes so long to get to, and... The hardest part of a sample return mission is the fuel you need to have as a reserve to get back from the target that you've got a sample from. It's hard enough getting it back from the moon, it's hard enough getting it back from an asteroid. How the hell are you going to get it from Saturn's moon of Titan? What they're planning on doing is refueling from the methane lakes that are on Titan. <laughs> that's bullshit. Yeah, that, that's confidence. Yeah. That is absolutely spectacular because the methane in the lakes is in a liquid state, so it's perfect for fuel. The crux of this, they need to harness liquid oxygen in order to get the fuel to burn. So it's all well and good having the hydrocarbons, but you need the oxygen there to burn it, to get the energy out of it. They realise that they've got half the battle with the fuel element of methane, but how do you ignite it? Well, you need liquid oxygen, and they're trying to find out a way of effectively producing liquid oxygen on Titan with this little probe that's got a sample on it. One option is to melt Titan's rocks of water ice with a nuclear heat source and then split the water into <laughs> H and O, which we've talked about in previous podcasts of, oh, well, there's fuel on the moon you just need to split the hydrogen and the oxygen they're thinking of doing this but on flipping titan yeah if the whole place is full of methane and you're going around with a peat sauce is that a good idea because <laughs> I, I kind of feel it's like if your kitchen's full of gas because you left the gas on is it a good idea to look for the gas leak with a cigarette lighter are they going to blow up titan <laughs> That is a valid question, but they're not going to blow up Titan. <laughs> I'm just, just imagining this little robot with an arm going out with a cigarette lighter trying to sort of light its fart so it can launch off. Or, <laughs> or it's like a horror movie where the headlights that rovers now have have gone out. So this little rover's like, oh no, the headlight's gone out. Oh, don't worry, I've got my trusty lighter. And then you just see this from a distance. And the distance being like Earth. Jupiter. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be in NASA on that day. Oh, sorry, we blew up a moon. <laughs> Well, America has had quite a blasé attitude to other atmospheres in the past. I mean, look at the Manhattan Project. Some scientists said, oh, detonating this nuclear device over Hiroshima could well ignite the atmosphere. And they were like, ugh, do it. Which is quite blasé. I just wanted to highlight how like bold this idea is of just siphoning Titan's methane to get back to Earth. That is quite an incredible proposition. Moving on, I have some follow-up on the Hiiaka occultation. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I do, although it does sound like you're possessed there. <laughs> 
I, I do, because it was last episode, but for new people, what do you want about? So, occultation is when something passes in front of another object. It, that's in astronomy terms, by the way. So, very much like a solar eclipse, where the moon comes between Earth and the sun. The moon goes in front of the sun, occults it, but covers it entirely, so that kind of promotes it into an eclipse. But sometimes, you get planets like Mercury that will occult the sun and they will pass in front of it and you'll be able to watch mercury go across it. it when you do that you can also measure the output so to speak of the sun so when mercury's not on there you get quite a significant bit of brightness and when mercury's a little dot in front of it that that brightness will go down a little bit and that difference will tell you when mercury is in front of the star or not and you can use that to measure the size of mercury its diameter it's an incredible bit of science and geometry and you can learn a lot about planets when they pass in front of stars not just our star but other stars and you can learn a lot about other planets and other moons as they pass in front of stars as well. And this happened to a dwarf planet in our solar system called Haumea. And Haumea has two moons, Namaka and Hiiaka. And Hiiaka was in the right place at the right time for it to pass in front of a star and cast a shadow onto Earth. And this shadow traversed the North America continent. And scientists and uh, amateur astronomers were able to set up their telescopes and observe this tiny moon, which is 320 kilometers across, pass in front of a distant star and measure the shadow. Now, out of the 12 attempts, only two observations were successful. But out of these two, they were able to measure the diameter of Hiiaka, which was thought to be about 320, but these returned 300 kilometers. So that is within the range, and it could be a more accurate measurement of the moon's diameter. So that's what occultion astronomy is. Last episode we were saying, oh, if you can get in contact with your observatory, see if you can see it. Unfortunately, it turns out a lot of you wouldn't have been able to see it because it was only two successful measurements which happened in Northeast America, in Pennsylvania, and I think it's Maryland. It's hard to see on the map, but I think it happened either in Washington or Maryland. But if you, if you look at the map, you can see those red lines and the green lines and the blue lines. That's where they thought the shadow will be. And all of the observations with Within that path did detect it. The observatories outside of the path did detect it. Now I'm not an occultation astronomer. I have a very passing knowledge of this as in like I only I've only just started to scratch the surface of it so I am probably wrong in saying this so please take this with a pinch of salt but to me it looks like they got the shadow wrong and these successful chords indicate that the orbit of Hiiaka is slightly bigger or smaller than what it thought to be so the shadow was not where it was supposed to be based on the current orbital measurements. But from this, you can say like, well, these guys saw a shadow, but these guys over here didn't. Therefore, the orbit of the moon must be this because the moon has to be this far away from the planet in orbit to occult the star. So you can then even get more measurements out of this planet and moon that I think is 500 astronomical units away. Let me just check that. While you're doing that, yeah, this goes into the conversation we had last time of this is incredible maths that someone's worked out where, yeah. where this thing's going to intersect the Earth. Sorry, 43 astronomical units. You've got the speed of light as well. So once the light's sort of left and not been occulted, as it were, whilst its fellow photons have, Earth is moving, uh, spinning and moving at the same time. So it's got to take that into consideration as the uh, photons turn up. Yeah. So I don't blame them for getting it a bit wrong. <laughs> 
Don't there, do it next time. There's a there's a lot of maths involved. There's not much else to say on this other than two successful measurements were taken, which is still astounding that a moon that far away, 43 astronomical units, which I just looked up now and I'm confirming again, can make a shadow on Earth and we can measure it. And from that, we can measure the moon's distance across epoxy 300 kilometers when it's 43 astronomical units away an astronomical unit being the distance between the earth and the sun which is 150 million kilometers but on the topic of occultation and stellar occultation i have a new moon alert or a potential new moon alert because Amateur astronomers may have discovered a moon of an asteroid called Arecibo. Oh, you, oh, it's, oh, it's named after the observatory. Ah, it all ties together. <laughs> oh my God, didn't realise that. <laughs> uh, Arecibo or Arecibo, uh, there's an asteroid and it might have a moon because when amateur astronomers were measuring the light curves of it, when it passed in front of a, a star, there were even more significant dips in the light curve than were expected. And this was picked up by two readings, not just the one. And that dip is probably due to a moon. So it has the asteroid going in front of the star and the moon as well, which caused a further dip. So they may have discovered a moon from stellar occultation, from just shadows cast on Earth. They may have discovered an, a moon of an asteroid from that, which is quite amazing. Huge asterisk here that it has to be hold off from public announcements to qualify for the publication in certain scientific journals, which I completely understand. So please don't run with this. This is why it's like I'm saying potential new moon. But that is still incredible that it could well be from this very technique of shadows cast on Earth, we see moons. What was that? If someone publishes it in a public journal, then it doesn't count. Uh, this this is information I've got on Twitter as well. It's not a case of doesn't count. They just don't want to make a public announcement in case they have to retract it later on. Because it could, it could be software glitches. It could be due to something else. So that's why they're like, we want to hold off from saying we have officially found a moon in scientific journals. But right now they're like, we found this. It could be something. Okay, see. Because <laughs> I was going to say, this is a public podcast. So yes, we're, we're double confirmed that this is an observation but not necessarily a moon yeah precisely so i mean if that's that's true a bit of skepticism and we've got to wait and see but if it's true that is amazing to be able to see <laughs> that that level of detail once again i can barely see a few meters ahead of me <laughs> so how you'd see a was it a moon going round an asteroid via its shadow well, this asteroid is between Mars and Jupiter. It's an outer belt asteroid. This asteroid is 20 kilometers across and it's about roughly half the distance between Jupiter and Mars. And if it has a moon, then how that, that's probably going to be like a couple of hundred meters across. So yeah, to be able to detect that moon from shadows cast on Earth is just spectacular. That is amazing. Let's hope it's true, but... Uh... Well, I, considering it is two independent observations, both saw the same light curve of the same occultation, I think it's safe to say that it probably is, but let's wait for the confirmation to say it is definitely a new moon. And 
The final feature of the podcast, we like to continue with the ongoing feature, and the next moon is, and this week it is the Jovian moon of Lysithia. This is another moon of the Himalaya group, when last time we talked about Himalaya, which is the largest member of the Himalaya group. This is the next moon out, orbiting Jupiter at 11.7 million kilometres. However, that does vary a bit because this moon orbits with an eccentricity of 0.15, which means its orbit is slightly oval shape. It takes about 260 days to complete an orbit and orbits at an angle of about 26 degrees. Now, this moon is fairly big compared to a lot of the outer moons of Jupiter, which are usually tiny two-kilometer things just whizzing about the planet, whereas Lysithia is 42 kilometers across, so that's quite a big moon. And it was also discovered in 1938, and considering a rock 40 kilometers was discovered in 1938 using a technique where you took a photo of the stars by developing them onto photographic plates over long exposures of about an hour, and then you'd just go, right, next plate, right, next plate. And so you'd have these hour things, and what you would do is overlap them to see where the stars were and see what is moving. And a quote from the paper published in 1938, God, I hate the way this is written. Jupiter's motion was allowed for in the guiding so that the images of the satellites were nearly circular whilst those of stars were elongated, which makes sense. It's a long exposure, so you're moving the telescope with Jupiter, so therefore the stars will move. And anything that's a streak is a star, and anything that's a dot is an object that's moving with Jupiter. So Jupiter will be a big splodge because it'll be reflecting a lot of light, but you'll have a lot of things around Jupiter or caught in that field of vision while you're getting the exposure for Jupiter, they will be moving objects caught in Jupiter's orbit. So they managed to capture asteroids and moons in these plates, and some of the moons were already discovered, some of them were asteroids that they knew about already, but they found two new satellites using this technique. One was called Kame, which belongs to the Kame group, which we'll talk about in a future episode, and the other one was Lysithia. And the name it was given at the time is Jupiter X, because it was the 10th moon that Jupiter discovered at the time, which is pretty cool to be called Jupiter X. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is just a Roman numeral. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I thought that was <laughs> them trying to be cool or something. Yes, those cool cats from 1938. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any questions about Lysithia? Is it one of those moons where that is basically all we know about it? But we have taken some other images using Earth-based telescopes, so I'll post links to the images of them. However, they are just dots in the sky. There's not a lot of detail there. However, because Lysithia is pretty big, at about 42 kilometers, what you can do is you can track it with a telescope on Earth and you can measure the light curve of this moon. So you just keep looking at it for ages. And if the light gets dimmer and brighter and dimmer and brighter, then you observe it for long enough, you'll go, okay, there's a pattern here. So therefore you can tell it's rotating and you could get a rough idea of, oh, what is the rotation period of this moon? And it's estimated to be 13 hours for Lysithia. So you can learn a lot about these moons from just looking at the light reflected off them. In fact, some of these smaller ones, they've just discovered a dot, but there's n they've no idea how big it is but they've managed to infer how big it is from how bright it is using the magnitude and a certain equation. It's some pretty pretty incredible mass that you can determine the size of an object by how bright it is. So if I look at the moon, as in Lysia, is all the light 
coming off it from the sun. Yes. So if you're at the right position, it could be sunlight that has been reflected off Jupiter and then is being reflected off Lysithia. And also it could be reflected off other moons if there are some nearby because moons like Europa and Ganymede have a very icy surface, so they're very reflective. Okay, but ultimately, ultimately, ultimately the it's sun. all from the s- yeah. sun. Okay, wow. So th- there's a photon that has gone out, bounced off some ice on Ganymede, yeah. then bounced again off the moon, and then come back to Earth. Yep, enough photons have done that that we've been able to see this moon rotate and determine what its rotation period is. Now imagine that, but for the moons of Pluto the moons of Eris, the moons of moons that are like 30 to 40 astronomical units away, way beyond the orbits of Pluto. Yeah, do you reckon when a photon leaves the, the sun, it says, oh, I wonder what I'll be, and then it just bounces off three planets and smacks into a photographic plate in 1938? <laughs> yeah, it, it's like when you get a blank piece of paper, and it's just like, there's so much potential. This this could be a masterpiece for someone, but then it's just getting a note scribbled on it, like Lithuania, funky dance. <laughs> Spain, crap song, good moon. Admittedly, it's mates, photons from the sun. Most of them are just heading out into space. We'll never hit anything. Yeah, but do you think they'd rather hit something or just be left alone to travel? <laughs> I don't know what the photons think. But yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably ultimately end up somewhere. Yeah, I think most people would. Um, so... Lysithia is named after a mythological character who was the daughter of Oceanus and one of Zeus's lovers. Many, many lovers. He was a friendly god, was that Zeus. So that's how the moon got its name. What are you going to call Lysithia? Uh, I'll call it formerly Jupiter X. Yes, the moon formerly known as Jupiter X. That's a cool name. So that is the latest moon in And the Next Moon Is. Tune in next time to discover more about moons, moon news, and hopefully we might have some updates about the live show as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast through the various platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Follow me on Twitter, which is at I am a lunatic, but you can just search for Sean Moondes and I'll appear. And I'm also on Instagram under I am a lunatic, so please follow me on there. And if you want to email the show, feel free to at I am a lunatic at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Uh, I haven't got my list of Jupiter moons up, so I don't know what moon we'll be looking at next.